Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Albert Reed, Managing Director of Condé Nast in the UK. We spoke to Albert about moving from editorial to the business side of journalism. His career at Condé Nast, including launching new editions of Vogue in India and China, and his new book, The Imagination Muscle. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Albert, to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Could we start with your new book, The Imagination Muscle? You tell a story in it about a particular book called The Secret Language of Film, which sort of provided the kernel for this. Could you kind of tell listeners a little bit more about it? Yes, I I was, a long time ago, I was, I was, following the advice of a friend of my parents who said you should read what no one else is reading because if you read what everyone else is reading you'll have the same ideas as everybody else. I picked up this book called The Secret Language of Film by a French scriptwriter called Jean-Claude Carrière. He's not particularly well known here but he's, he's, he's quite a legend in France and he wrote scripts for Louis Bunuel, the surrealist Spanish film director. And they had this wonderful tradition of, of when they were filming they would they would at the end of their of their day filming, they'd go back to their hotel rooms and they'd set themselves a task and each day they'd each have to come up with a story, an imaginative fancy that they'd lit upon and then they'd meet again at the bar an hour later and they would tell each other their stories. And the stories were sometimes very good, sometimes very bad, but the point was that they were exercising their imagination muscle. This was the, the carrier phrase that really stayed with me. And, and he said it was very important to keep the imagination muscle strong to keep imagining because by doing so by getting into the 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 practice of imagining you have more ideas and you have better ideas so this idea really really stuck with me over the years and it became something that always was at the back of my mind and underpinned my own approach to ideas and how I have ideas how I work with people who have ideas and now I work in a in a creative business where ideas are kind of the lifeblood of what we do at Condé Nast so it's, it's a subject that fascinates me. And I've always felt that we have a slight misconception about the imagination. We think of the imagination as being something fixed, something bestowed upon us from above, and we're either imaginative or not imaginative. The, the Romans used to talk of being breathed upon by the gods, and this idea of inspira, inspiration, as being something that came by chance. And really, I'm, I'm fighting against this notion of it being a chance occurrence, and really saying in this book that... The imagination is something we can work at. It's something that we, if we pay attention to when we have ideas, the moments in the day, if we engineer certain conditions, both on the inside and on the outside, then we will have more ideas and we'll have better ideas. I liked the line about how you came across this book um, while you were selling advertising space in, in theatrical brochures just out of university. That was obviously some time ago. What made you decide to want to write the book now? Why was this the, the time for you to do? It was a kind of confidence thing, really, of wanting to feeling the ability to write a book, feeling that the idea coming together was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was having the, the space to do it. I've always been so kind of driven by my day job, as it were, by my work, that really I, I never really had the chance to breathe and to think about it. And when it came to lockdown and 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 the space that that gave us all to think and reflect, I, I took the time to, to, to put it together as a, as a proposal. And I showed it to an agent and 
she showed it to a publisher and and, and, they, and they liked the idea so really it was a it was something that that I felt able to write about and other other aspects of the imagination came to me later on around business particularly and what I'm trying to do with this book is draw draw a line between the arts, science and business and saying really the imagination is behind them all and it's, and it's the same thing. That's that's the kind of idea that I that I want to put forward in this book. And and really the business side came to me much later. So it was a case of you working on the book alongside your day job just in lockdown um, rather than taking sort of sabbatical to do it? Yes, I did. I did that. And then I've been finishing it. I've been working at weekends um, in, in the time since lockdown and up until the end of last year when I finished it. And how did you go about, about the research, in particular, gathering this range of examples from ancient history to Hamilton to coffee houses to Picasso? How did you marshal that material? And then how did you think about bringing a structure to it? I was quite methodical about it. I, I, I obviously read a lot. I, I, I followed academic journals on the subject of creativity. There's a lot of academic work out there. What I what I've found, what I was missing, rather, was this book, that this type of book in, in the consumer space and in, in the general interest space or for the for the general reader for me this is a subject that's, that's been stuck really in ac- academia or in the kind of very businessy self-helpy space it wasn't something for me that that, that exists in in that in between space so I, I took a lot of ideas from the academic world and and translated them into a more of a straightforward format and I spoke with people I walked around, I know it sounds a bit silly but I walked around cities and thought about how cities work when I was traveling in Venice and Florence and thinking this is where the best ideas in history have happened, why is it? And then I have a whole subject on the cities that have the, you know, the, the, don't have the right angle corners and have alleyways and the souks of medieval Islam and the back streets of Renaissance Florence. These are the ideas that came to me on, on while I was traveling. So it's a combination of lots of different things. And, you know, there are lots of ideas on YouTube and there are lots of ideas on social media. So, so one has to pull all these things together. And then what I did then was marshal them into into different themes so you know you have the theme about observation where you have where i'm saying that observation is the is the foundation of of the imagination if you observe closely if you see things that other people don't see then then that is something that will inspire you but i talk about turner i talk about you know the james webb's james webb space telescope so there are lots of different elements which which I brought together in in this idea of observation. That's just one chapter. So so really, it was a massive amount of note taking and and talking to some academics in the US. I spoke to a few a few people who helped me on certain subjects. So it was putting all these strands together and really reading books. And this is one of the things that I talk about in in, in my book is reading books in a very different way, not having this sequential approach to reading where we read one book and then we finish it and then we read another book. The, 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 in the Renaissance, they would read lots of books at the same time, and they would take notes and they'd scribble on them in the margins, and they would read books several times over, and they'd have lots of different books from different back, you know, different subject matters at the same time. And this, for me, was a very helpful way of thinking about my book and how to unite different different subjects under under similar themes. And this is something that I say is a very good thing we should all be doing. We should all be reading differently and having. I mean, Bill Gates has this idea of going on reading holidays where, you, where over months coming up to a, a week or two week break, you will assemble, a, you know, fiction, science, biography, whatever it may be, different types of books. And by reading them together, you get this kind of interesting um, sort of coalition of ideas coming up together. 
And that's something that I think we need to bring back as a, as, as a way of reading. Does that fit in as well to your idea of, well, it's not your idea, but the, the commonplace book that you, you keep as well in terms of making a record of things that you're reading and that have um, sort of caught your attention? Yes, completely. Absolutely. The commonplace book was a, was a great tradition of the Enlightenment and, and really the best example of that is, of which I write at great length and in depth, is, is Leonardo da Vinci, who, whose notes are still available to see. And, and what I love about the idea of a commonplace book is having a whole mishmash of different observations, ideas. And if you look at da Vinci's notes, there are, there's writing, there's drawings, there's little shopping lists, and there's a whole kind of melange of, of ideas. And, and, and he really was the person who, for me, represents the, the, the joy of the commonplace book, where ideas collide and ideas jump across silos. And he was a he was a scientist. He was an artist, and he would do he'd paint the Mona Lisa by the by day, and then at night he'd go down to the morgues in in Santa Maria Novella in Florence and dissect corpses, and thereby studying the delicate way that a face is shaped, and go back and then paint Mona Lisa with even even more exquisite detail. So commonplace books for me are are, are this are this way of harnessing ideas and and. Really, there's a great line that I quote from Swift saying that great wits have short memories. So the commonplace is essential for people. The commonplace book is essential for anyone who wants to record their ideas. And it is kind of fascinating to see yourself on paper from many, many years ago. And I have, I have what is my version of a commonplace book from my 20s. And it's, you know, it's kind of both alarming and, and, and touching. And, and also you see a sort of freshness of perception in yourself. And a lot of it's no good, but occasionally you get these gems that, that, that when you see them again, and you've completely forgotten about them, so had you not written them down on a bit of paper, had you put them on your iPhone, it would have been, um, it would have been lost in a software upgrade at some point. We've had uh, the subject of commonplace books on the podcast before, actually. I remember that Max Hastings talks about Anthony Pohl's commonplace book as a sort of particular source of wisdom. Um, I was wondering, what would you say are some of the most striking things that you yourself learned about human creativity while you were working on the book? I learned about, well, lots of things. Where do I begin? The, 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 the quirky behaviour of certain artists in, in the way they came up with ideas. So... Schiller, the, the German Enlightenment philosopher, would keep a drawer of rotten apples in his study, and when he was seeking inspiration, he would he would lean down and take a deep breath of these apples and the ethylene that it emitted. And Turgenev would write his novels with his feet in a bowl of hot water, and Balzac had fifty cups of coffee. So I think there was a sort of there's a kind of um, quirky approach to to imagining, and and then you know Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov would find he had his best best idea sitting in the back of a parked car. But the ideas really that, for me, resonated were things like the waking moment. When, when Einstein first had the idea of relativity, he was just getting out of bed, and Walter Scott would say that the best ideas would come on him as he, in the first hour of, of, his, of his day. And I find the thing that I started doing, since I write it, well, I did it before without quite realising it, but what I do now is I, if I can, if the day allows, I will go straight from my bed with a cup of tea to my desk without any interruption from email or news. And that, for me, if I can get two hours out of the first, out of the beginning of the day, that, for me, is the most fertile part of the day. And that, for me, sets me up for the rest of the day. And actually, those are the best two hours of my day. So that's that's one element of it. I think another th- way of looking at ideas and how you have them is is to be 
not too obsessed with originality. I think we all, I mean, I'm talking really about artistic works here, but I think we all think since the, the dawn of the Romantic Age, we all have to be original. We all have, to, everything has to be new. But what I've found in this research, really, is if you look very carefully at the artists who are deemed to be most original, if you think of Picasso, or you think of Shakespeare, or if you think of, um, I'm a modern example, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, what they're really doing is they're, they are being original, but they're, they're, they're drawing together all sorts of disparate sources of information. They are, to my first point, they're reading what no one else is reading, but they're also creating an imaginative palette, if you like, they're, they're, which nobody else has. So if you look at Lin-Manuel Miranda, here you have, you know, with this extraordinary musical Hamilton, which is this great burst of originality, which we haven't seen anything like before. There are so many elements which are deeply unoriginal. You think of the musical tradition that he embarks upon in the first place, and then you think of the narrator as nemesis in Air and Burr, which comes straight from Amadeus and from uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. You think of the chorus that you have in Hamilton comes straight from Sweeney Todd, the way they tell the, they, they sort of foretell the story at the beginning of the show. And really the chorus, of course, goes back to to the Greek, ancient Greek drama. Then you have the, you know, in Hamilton, you have the statement of intent and you have the, in the song, you know, My Shot, which is something you see in all musicals, in West Side Story, in Les Miserables. So what he's doing is he's taking very, very traditional elements of musical theatre, but then he's combining them with other elements, hip hop and rap and a big fat biography of an obscure founding father and bringing them together because nobody else had those components in their mind together. So I think really the lesson of great artists is to, is to find, have these different sources in your mind and read what Nelson is reading and, and look at Picasso's case going around the Musée d'Ethnographie and seeing these incredible works of, of African art, which he then brought into his work, Les Demoiselles de Matavignon, which is, you know, deemed to be the most, the, the, the sort of defining moment in 20th century art, setting the whole course of modern art from there and Cubism. So that, so that, that for me is one of the, one of the, one of the things that I, I, I kind of knew, but I hadn't really, sort of completely, completely crystallised in my own mind. To return to the uh, sort of writing part of it, in your experience of writing it, it's interesting that you say that the early morning is your, your most productive time because that's a, a theme that's come up again with other guests. Um, how did you find the actual process of writing it yourself? Did you did you find that the words came easily, or was it a bit of a sort of endurance feat to get the words on the page. I found it a complete pleasure to do it and I, and I would urge anyone thinking of writing to only do it if they if they love doing it. I mean for me the research was 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 fascinating because it leads you in directions you'd never go in normally and it it guides you in new in new ways to, to new areas of, 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 of ignorance which you, which you then learn about. Um, but really writing the actual act of writing is something that I I adore doing and I feel most alive when I'm writing it's a kind of moment it's a sort of because I you know I have my day job when I'm working with other people and we have meetings and we you know we do things by consensus and we negotiate with each other and we you know deal with imperfect world whereas when you're writing a book on your own you're completely in control of, of it and it's 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 a wonderful feeling for, for the control freak who doesn't quite get his his kick in the in the office <laughs> to be able to do something that's completely your own of course there are then subsequent stages when the when you know when you work with the editor and it becomes a more collaborative process. But the the the, the first and um, however many drafts you do of your book 
are a solo effort and, and for me that's a, it's a pleasure and it's completely absorbing and 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 i i've loved doing it but I, I think again i'd say to anybody who is you know approaches their desk with a heavy heart i'd say don't bother <laughs> there are enough books out there <laughs> i also think another important element of what i've what i believe is is i mean i write my books on a laptop but i i take all my notes in spiral bound notebooks and i use a pen and i very strongly believe that the act of writing with a pen or a pencil is is a very important part of the creative flow. I think if you if you're in the act of writing, you 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 have thoughts which which don't come until you start until you start doing it, and that's you know that's something that Leonardo da Vinci talks about as well. But one of his rules is say to always you know draw or note in the act of doing so ideas will present themselves, and I strongly believe that. But in the act of drawing or noting or or writing or sketching then that brings the imagination alive we wanted to come back to the imagination muscle later in our conversation but could we roll back now to your early life um is it right that your, your father was a novelist and historian your grandfather a poet and a critic your family had a background in farming did the arts and the creative industries feel like a, a place you would naturally end up yes i think it did in a way I, I think i resisted it for a while i was i've always had this i've always enjoyed being on the on the sort of cusp of art and commerce and and writing books was something that seemed less perhaps less outrageous to me because my father was writing books as I grew up I was also very aware from him of the precariousness of writing books both financially and 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 in every other way you know you're 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 at the mercy of you're starting again every year in a sense and and you know you you can have some lucky breaks as he did and you can write some wonderful novels as he did and works of non-fiction but equally you can you can Come a cropper, so I was I was always immersed in that world and familiar with it. But I I was also had more of a business leaning than my my father did, who has never really worked in an office at all and has no knowledge of. I so I was saying I'm the first person in my family to ever have a proper office bound job because I, it's going back it's writer writer and then it's farmers going all the way back after that. So so I'm breaking new ground for the Reed family and it's um and but having said that I've always been drawn towards the creative industries and particularly journalism and magazines and and Condé Nast and that ability to work with creative people and to and to play a part in 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 the creative process albeit a more of a commercial part. What informed your um, decision to study classics university rather than say history or English or any other kind of art subject? I was very drawn to it because I had very good teachers I was I was I was very well taught and I had a sort of a kind of I was very attracted to the works of Homer and Virgil and these great epic poets and also what's good about classics is you study all aspects you study language you study history you study literature uh, so it covers it covers the whole range of, of 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 subjects and it's you know it's kind of considered to be a little bit irrelevant by some people but I found it to be very very useful for my life and and I think it's a very good foundation for, for writing, for, for the understanding of language, for the use of structure, and, and also to give you a grounding in wonderful stories, you know, some of which I've, I've, I mentioned in my, in my book. So it served me very well, albeit the pressure to do courses these days, which have a more of a direct application to, to work, I think is, is intensifying and is more difficult for, for the new generation. And then you made 
uh, an entry into journalism yourself. You wrote and edited for The Spectator, The Mail, The Express, The Telegraph. What sort of things were you writing about? And were you on staff or were you doing this as a freelancer? I was doing a bit of both. I started as a freelancer. I wrote book reviews. And then I got a job on the books page of the Daily Mail, right? Commissioning reviews and then The Express. And all the way through, I was... I, I started off writing, and then I moved into commissioning. But then I, what I really discovered was that I, I, I found the business side of newspapers to be, to be fascinating. And, and, I, and I spent some time at the Express, which in those days was kind of, still is maybe, you know, a, a, a title that was going through a rather a, seism, a sort of seismic identi- identity crisis. And I was very young and given quite a lot of responsibility, which is, which is one of the good things about working for somewhere where all the senior people are getting, getting fired. Um, and I was given great responsibility and I was managing a team of 20 people and I was given budgets and I was, you know, involved in the marketing side of it. And although it was a very difficult business, I was exposed to quite a lot of the business side of media at quite a young age. I was in my mid to late 20s at that point. And what I realised was that I didn't really want to be working on a newspaper the rest of my life. And I was drawn to the business side of newspapers and to media. So I left the Express and I went to do an MBA at INSEAD, which rounded off the, this education, which, although I loved doing classics, it was a fairly narrow education. And, and that's, one, again, one of the things that I talk about in the book. Uh, so having the business education in the cla- it w- was a very good way for me to, to, to shift career, to, to rebrand myself and to make myself somebody who was employable on the other side of the, of the of the media world, so I then went to work for Condé Nast, and I was able to persuade them to to give me a job, because I'd um, done the MBA. Really, we always get into the logistics of these things. How did you fund doing an MBA? Out of interest, I kind of googled how much an MBA costs at INSEAD now, and it's ninety thousand euros. Did you get a grant, or was it, had you saved up, or was it free at that time? I don't know. <laughs> well, it was a, it's a lot more expensive now than it was. I think from memory, it was about. 20,000 pounds, which even that was a lot of money. I was fortunate; I got a scholarship to to fund a part of it, and then I borrowed the rest of the money. And it, you know, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a kind of undertaking and a bit of a risk. And really, you know, I was quite well paid at the Daily Express. For, for, if, for you know, I was single; I didn't have children, and it was a very comfortable life. And to make that leap from a comfortable life to no income, taking on debt, no real knowledge of what will happen afterwards, was a, was, a, was a gamble. And I'm very, very glad I did it. And I think probably if I, if I have had any success in my life at all, it's been around taking calculated risks and taking a leap. And that's, that's something that is hard to do. And, but it, for me, it, it, was, it, would, it paid off. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the managing director of Condé Nast Britain, Albert Reed. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we're going to hear from the novelist Ian McEwan and he's going to tell you about the most important traits a writer should have. Well, <laughs> a love of solitude. Solitude being one of the great luxuries of civilization um, and we must distinguish it from loneliness it's quite another matter so uh, a taste for the pleasures of your own thoughts is absolutely crucial that sense of walking around your own thoughts as if in a garden 
and taking profound pleasure in it um, is crucial to the art of, of dedicating yourself to writing a novel. Novels are long, long in the writing, and you have to live with them for years, two, three, four years, and never lose touch, I would say, with the element of pleasure. If there's no pleasure in the writing, uh, you might as well stop. That was Ian McEwan, and if you were interested in what Ian had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. But for now, back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Albert Reed. Could you tell us about your early years at Condé Nast? So you became Asia-Pacific Business Director in 2001. You launched editions of Vogue in China and in India. What were you doing? And, and could you really unpack this process of launching a, a legacy title in a new market like that? Really talk from, from beginning to end. We'd love to hear the, the mechanics of it. I'm doing the same thing at the moment in the Middle East, actually. So it's something that I've done on and off over the years at Condé Nast um, all over the world. I mean, the two big markets that I was involved with were China and India. And China was a fascinating experience because we were, we had the headquarters of Condé Nast International um, is based in London. And so everything outside of the US reports into London or did. It's slightly changed now, but that was how it was then. And we wanted to launch Vogue in China. The problem with publishing in China is you are um, only allowed to publish titles. They, they have government Fund, they have government-backed titles and they're, they're licensed. So to, in order to publish a title, you have to work with a local partner. So we spent many, many years, I mean, probably three or four years, working with the government, working with a local partner, giving back to the Chinese publishing industry by giving talks. I had to go and give talks at seminars in China to publishers who were publishing things like Agricultural Weekly and, you know, and, and very, and, you know, sort of <laughs> heavy machine monthly um, about how to, how, to make, how to make magazines and to give them the sort of 101 of, what a magazine was and how to market magazines and how to make money out of magazines because they were, they were they were shifting from a state sponsor. It was like it's like as if all the magazines in this country came out of the departments of the civil service. You know they they were all they were all set up with a particular sort of um, motive in mind, make something better or to inform people about an industry. So the idea of magazines as lifestyle products, as entertainment products, as as as, as things that might be fun and might want make you want to buy things that was completely anathema to the Chinese. So we spent a long time working on that, and eventually we, we, we got permission to work with a local partner, and it's been a, it's been a fantastic success. And then in India, we did, it was more straightforward in a way. We still had to get various permissions, which took a bit of time, but we hired a... The first step really is to find a local managing director and to find a local editor for Vogue and, and a local uh, commercial lead publisher. And really finding the... What, what's interesting about hiring these people is your, your editor of Vogue in China and your editor of Vogue in India and your editor of Vogue in the UK, that they have certain attributes which are similar, and then you have other ones which are completely local. And what we're always trying to do is to make sure that we are very, very embedded in the local culture. And I find that the cultural element of what we do is so fascinating, because if you read Indian Vogue, you know, it really is very Indian, and, and, and it reflects all the wonderful elements of Indian culture, and the, you know, the photographers, the colours, the clothes, the fashion, the... The, the the Bollywood element and the you know the there's the so much to the, the amazing writing that that India has so there's so much to reflect and what we we're always very careful to say in our business is we're not we're not a sort of McDonald's bringing in a template and stamping it on a country we're doing almost the reverse where we're taking a culture out of a we're taking a culture and and, and spreading it around the world and we have 
editors who, who move around the world, and the, the editor of Indian Traveller now oversees all the travellers around the world. So it's a fascinating experience. And to some extent, your advertising base is similar. You're following the same big advertisers where they're setting up and where they're spending money. They, they take a lot of comfort in in you know advertising in 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 vogue in india or in china or in japan over a local title because then they, they know what they're going to get so it's a good business model when you get it right but you've got to be careful to make sure that you're really reflecting the the local culture and the local nuances of of, of what the reader wants in that market we'll definitely uh, talk a bit more about the business model but um i was intrigued that you said that the editors have similar attributes um across different titles um what kind of attributes did you have in mind? Well, they're very sophisticated. They're very creative. I, mean, I think one of the interesting questions that we have at Condé Nast these days is what, what is an editor? An editor 20 years ago was somebody who, who commissioned shoots and chose photographers and put together stories with their fashion directors and, 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 and really were creating a magazine. And now the job is so much wider. They have to be able to do that, but they also have to be able to understand the digital side of what we do they have to understand social media they have to understand video they have to be performers on stage they have to be advocates for the title they have to be meeting with advertisers they have to be coming up with ideas for events so the the the, the job of an editor is 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 enormous and there's a lot of pressure on these these characters to to come up with something to, to, to be a certain type of person and of course it's hard to do all those things but we look for somebody who has that charisma that authority that that taste, which it often boils down to, 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 to and, and, and clearly the ideas, going back to my book, somebody who has ideas is, 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 and also has the ability to find other people with ideas and build a team. And really I, what I found in starting companies around the world and starting businesses is if you, choose the, if you choose the right managing director and the right editor in a market, everything else is easy. They, 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 they're smart enough to find good people and they build up a great team. If you, find, if you choose the wrong people, then it's all a disaster and they, they, they hire the wrong people and you get a sort of ripple effect that, that can be either positive or negative and can be a dream or a nightmare, depending on which one you take. Is it correct that in India, Vogue was publishing in English, but in China, it was in Chinese? And I was wondering for your, as someone who's kind of overseeing from, from London, how would it vary between handling a, a Startup publication that that you can read and one that is in a language that you're it's difficult. If it's a Mandarin, it's difficult because you you can't read it. You have to rely on the local teams. But that 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 is that that was the best decision for the market. So so you 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 do what's best for the market and 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 react accordingly. And how did your career develop from becoming deputy managing director in 2012 to becoming managing director in 2017? I was working in the head office of Condé Nast for many years, which is where I was launching, going out to launch these titles in these different markets. Um, and then one day, Nicholas Coleridge, who was running the UK business, rang me and said, oh, he was looking for a deputy. Did, he, did, 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 he, did I know anyone who could, who could help him? Because the business was getting bigger and bigger and he needed help. And I said, yeah, I do know somebody. And I, <laughs> I, I mentioned myself. And then it was, so I became his number two. And he was a joy to work with. Um, and then, so then I, I, so I moved from the, from what was the, the, the headquarters where you were really a kind of, so you were launching new businesses or you were monitoring the other businesses and you, it was a very good training in the sense, cause you were, you were, you know, you were, you were seeing all aspects of the business and all aspects of the, of the world. Um, but going into the UK business, which I was number two at, and then I 
took over from Nicholas when he when he left. Um, it's much more operational. You're dealing with day-to-day stuff. You're dealing with you know people. You're dealing with budgets and you know print runs and covers and uh, but you're still you know the the the, the great pleasure and interest of Condé Nast is, 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 is your, your take, you have these enormously powerful brands and you're taking them, you're, you're, you're in a way the custodians of them and you're making sure that we don't mess things up with what we have and especially something like Vogue which is so powerful and so precious but also you're thinking to yourself what else can we do, what, what can we do with Wired which we launched when I was there, uh, what, you know, can we take it into events, can we take it into podcasts, can we take it into, into consulting which we've, and we've done all those things and then can you take Tatler into you know private client work and so what what i found fascinating and really enjoyable about Condé Nast is is this it's had this very entrepreneurial spirit within a large corporation and you have the enormous head start of having these very powerful brands could you tell us and i'm sure there's tremendous variety but what a typical day or a typical week um in that in that role at the head of Condé Nast might involve well my role has changed a bit now because i'm now i've now got more of a european role so i spend more time in france and the middle east as well as the uk so it's slightly different to what it was but when i was managing director of just the uk i was i mean every day was different but you'd have a brand meeting so you'd gather together once once a, every two weeks or so you'd, you'd have the editor the publisher the circulation director the marketing director the the, the you know two or three other the head of communications and you'd you'd be tracking the numbers. So a lot of what you're doing is tracking the numbers. So how, are we up or are we down? Well, how, is the, how are the April figures looking? Why are we down 5%? What happened? And then, so the commercial directors put on, the, you know, they have their feet held to the fire and they say, well, we've got a problem with this advertiser or this one's coming up or things are looking better for next month. So we need to worry about this month. So we have a lot of monitoring and pushing of, of the existing business. And then the question that I keep asking is, what's next? What are we going to do next year to, to, to grow this business? So there's a kind of, I think the role of the managing director is, I mean, it, it depends on the business, but the role for, for me at Condé Nast has been to, 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 to monitor, but also to push and to, and to say, we've done three events this year. Let's do, if we're going to add a fourth next year, what's it going to be? And then allow them to come up with the idea, allow them to come up with the business model, allow them to take the, the, the praise and the, and the glory and, the, the, and allow them to control it. Um, uh, but really to be the sort of underlying energy that's that's taking the business forward that for me is 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 very important but i but i I, but to that point i think it's also very important to allow creative people the freedom and to take the initiative to have the ideas themselves and to and to 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 make them happen and not to micromanage so when you have 12 brands as we as we at content as we have at content as you know you can't micromanage every single brand but you can you're just you're you're um you're you're doing you're doing that for each of them, and and each one has a slightly different position, a different areas of strength, strengths and weaknesses. So you're you know you're on Vogue one day, you're on Wire the next day, you're on GQ the next day, you're on Glamour, and each one of those has a very different identity and different people, different culture. And I think again that sort of managing lots of mini cultures is 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 for me an important element, and not being too homogenous about it in terms of how we approach corporate life. I always try not to be too corporate, and I think being too corporate is is dangerous for a creative business. Well, that taps into my next question, which is how has the use of data um, evolved in terms of the kinds of decisions that you're making about the business and about the sort of future of Condé Nast? Well, it's a very interesting question. I, I think, and, and, and again, this touches on elements of my book. I think the the use of data is, is essential. I think we've we've become much more scientific about 
how we create content, particularly in the digital sphere. So we have people doing things that we didn't have five years ago. We have audience development experts. We have people tracking um, when the best time to post a, a story is and, and based on the data that we have. We have data segmentation around, around um, who we're targeting. The, the downside of data, and there's, there's so much data, by the way, that it's, it's, it's one of the challenges <clears throat> is to know what data to use and what data to ignore. Um, advertisers love data. So a lot of what we do is about, is about providing post-campaign data. So that's a very important element. But at the same time, I don't think you can be over-reliant on data. I think what, what I find fascinating about the world we're in at Condé Nast is we're kind of art and commerce, and the art element of it is, is vital. And great artists don't rely on data, and great editors use data, but they, they're, not, they're not governed by data. So someone like Edward Enninfall will, will, will have an idea, but it won't, it, you know, it'll, be, it'll be an idea that comes through the mysterious process of artistic inspiration that, we, that is, I write about so much in my book. And it's very important to have that, to have that, 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 that sort of instinctive gut feel for what, what, is, what is going to be the next cover or the next initiative or the next business. And data can help you, but it's not the only source of, of information. What is your read on the future of the magazine industry and, and its future viability? So much has changed in the last 20 years with the advent of uh, the digital and everything like that. Many legacy print publications have had a difficult time of it. You're obviously someone who's passionate about magazines as as products and as artifacts. But where do you? How have things changed? Firstly, and where do you see things going from here? I think I think there's a real danger in our world of having a very binary approach to media and to saying it's all about digital and print is essentially on the way out and it's over. We're just managing decline. I do not think that is true, especially of our titles. The, the, the magazines that we have are remarkably strong and remarkably popular, and the advertisers in Europe love, love our magazines, and they still invest very heavily in them. And you have a range, going back to my earlier point of having a, having a range of cultures, you have a range of, 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 of scenarios with our magazines, and some magazines like House and Garden and World of Interiors are incredibly strong, and they're stronger than ever, and they're booming in print, but they're also growing digital. So, so, we're, so we're trying to have our cake and eat it in a way, and, we're, and we are to an extent, succeeding in that, as well as events. And then you have something like Glamour, which, which was, uh, we, we launched in 2001, it was the biggest selling women's magazine in Europe at one point, selling 650,000 copies a month. It's now completely digital. So that, so, so, so we, 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 you know, we, we act according to the, to the circumstances of each title, but, but with the exception of Glamour, we're still very much believers in print for our other titles. And, we're also growing very fast on digital. So, you know, print is not easy. I'm not saying it's, it's I'm not saying it's, it is what it was, but it's still remarkably powerful. Advertisers love, the advertisers that we work with love the environment that a magazine has. It loves the, the brand safety. It loves being around, they love being around the other advertisers. They, they, they love the cultural moment of a magazine cover dropping and the, the, the you know, the, the rhythm of the monthly magazine. They love the, the, the weight of the paper and the, and the, the, the magazine sitting on the coffee table as, as a sort of badge of belonging. If, you, if you're a subscriber to the world of interiors, it, it denotes a certain sophistication about your own, your own worldview, which, which is a kind of subtle um, uh, sort, of, sort of power that we have with our titles. You know, you're, you belong to something and you, it, it shows you are, 
you're a certain type of person, and the advertisers want to be part of that. And and the engagement with the magazines is very strong. So so that they still have a role to play. But then we then we also have websites and we have social media channels and we have. You know, I was talking to the, the, our video lead in France last week. Uh, you know, he says, he reminded me that we have, when we, when we make a video, we, we have to post it on seven different channels in, and each one is you know, edited differently. And some are short, some are long, and some are for TikTok, some are for YouTube, some are for Pinterest. And so we have this uh, need to be, to be in so many different places these days uh, in order to be where our, our customer, our users are, our audience is. And that, that, is, that is a challenge for all media companies is how do you, expand and, and serve all these channels and monetize them while retaining the quality and the, the um, sophistication that you had when you started out just with print. One thing people often say when they're talking about um, the decline of print or so-called decline of print is the collapse in advertising revenue. Has that been the case at Condé Nast or has it sort of held up over, over the past 10 years? It held up remarkably well. It's not, it's not what it was and we have to be much more they're much smarter with advertisers these days. And what, we really, what we're really doing with advertisers is we're, we're, we're not just going in and selling a page of advertising. We're, we're going in with a whole package around print, around digital, around events. And it changes. You know, sometimes they want, they want more of an event, less of print. Sometimes they want more of print. So, so we, we, we have to have these, these different platforms in our, in our, in our armoury in order to, um, to give them what, what they want. And I would say... we. Condé Nast is the is the voice, not the echo. It's a, it's a, in fact, it's a Tina Brown quote from her memoirs, which I think is very very important. We we are, editorially, we we are, setting. We're not following the zeitgeist. We're setting the zeitgeist, and we and we have to be commercially. We have to be, one step ahead of our advertisers. We have to be helping them to understand what TikTok is and how it works, and we have to be, um, demonstrating our value to them not only as. As, as partners, but as, as advisors and as, as partners who can deliver audiences who can make them more successful. In terms of internal culture, you mentioned the changing role of the editor. Has there been a, a change of expectations in internal culture as well? One thinks of the Devil Wears Prada stereotype, but also some of the coverage that's come on about uh, you know internal relations at Condé Nast. Has there been a, a sense that people have to be or that there has to be a different way of interacting internally. And, and a kind of adjacent to that question, has your approach to, to what people get paid, particularly at the start of their careers and particularly uh, whether interns and so forth get paid, has there been a change in, in that side over the past uh, couple of decades? Yes, there's been a big change. We're very mindful of the fact that we're based in London. London's a very expensive place to live. If you're an intern and we want to attract people from diverse backgrounds, we can't just assume that they can all stay at their parents' house in London and they might live somewhere else, they might live outside London. So we, 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 we pay them properly and we reflect that in, in, in the way we approach the, um, the, our approach to, to, to having people coming into the business. And we look at the salaries and we do what we can. It's not easy, and particularly at the moment, the cost of living. And yeah, the following point, I suppose to, to phrase it slightly other way, I mean, has the age of the kind of imperial magazine editor in some ways, has that passed, do you think? Is it a different way of running things now? So I wouldn't use the word imperial, but I would say that the age of the mag, the big magazine editor, the, 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 you know, we have big magazine editors. We have Anna Winter, we have Edward Enninful, we have Will Welch and GQ, we have Divya on Traveller. We still have these big totemic figures who are representative of the authority that we bring to the industry. 
they sit they kind of sit at the center of a spider's web of 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 their industry so they are advisors they're partners they're they're tastemakers advertisers rely on them to tell them what's going well what's going what's going badly and and they so we we have this sort of symbiotic relationship with commercial editorial with with our with our clients where they need us we need them and and the editors form a crucial part of that and it's are they imperial they're not imperial but they're 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 vital they're still vital characters we couldn't do without editors you know, the world needs editing. The world needs people who can put things in context, who can tell you what is important, who can, who can, who can contextualise what's happening, whether it's in fashion or it's interiors or in technology or in beauty in the beauty industry. So we have we have to have these people and their teams to to do that, and that is what we do. That that is the essence the essence of of what we're about. I was wondering, given your um, experience in in the business side of things and also all the talk recently of you know the rise of chat gpt and how that might change journalism and also the fact you've just written a book about creativity what does what's your assessment of how that technology will or will not shape the industry in the in the short medium and long term it's a, it's a very weird time i was reading a long article about chat gpt the other day and then as when i got to the end of it i realized it was written by chat gpt so i think i think we're entering a very very odd phase when we don't really know what What's going on? What's who's written what, and and where authorship begins and ends? I think there's a whole wave of privacy and lawsuit legal um, aspects coming coming our way on this. I think there's a kind of optimi- a pessimistic and an optimistic take on on AI. I think the pessimistic take is that that it's like a sort of rising tide around our ankles, rising up to our knees, of gradually taking over the imaginative activity. Of 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 work um, at, the, at the lower levels of the of the imaginative hierarchy. So if you think of, I don't know, music for adverts or copywriting, I think there are elements which were already being done by AI. And the and the problem is, if you're a composer, why would you and your and your basic meat and potatoes of composing, you know, music for adverts, say, is taken away from you? What, what, how are you going to make a living in order to compose the great masterpiece? And and the other thing which I find fascinating is the there's evidence to suggest that chord progression in music is gradually being restricted by algorithm. Our music is becoming less and less interesting, and and I think we are facing what we could could call the adequacy problem, where we have music that's good enough, we have films that are good enough. You know, if you look at the 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 Hollywood, you know, the the, the box office top ten of last year, it's all it's all every single one of them is an old film, an old idea, whether it's Avatar or Puss in Boots or or Doctor Strange. It's 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 the same names so so i think that is a worry but i think there's an optimistic take on on ai which i think is that ai like tools in the past have is is an enabler of the imagination if if you if you if you know how to use it i think if you're in the video games industry or if you're in the special effects industry you can do things or you'll soon be able to do things which are incredibly powerful and you won't need a vast army of technicians to do say a, make a build a video game and so i think i think i think really the, the 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 if you're worried about AI replacing you, I think you're probably more you should be more worried about somebody else replacing you who knows how to use AI. So I think that 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 is that is that is the the um, the difference. And I think that um, the question that I don't know the answer to, which I think is a fascinating one, is will AI going back to my rising tide analogy, will it go all the way up? Will it will it will it create 
masterpieces? Will it write great novels? Will it will it win the Oscar for best screenplay? Will it, will it compose music that sort of moves the heart? I'm I I'm not sure it will. I I think there's going to be a natural ceiling where where AI stops and that the human magical force inside its imagination still dominates. But um, I think AI lacks that. I mean, if 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 Coleridge was tweeting from the grave, he'd say that. AI lacks that vital capacity of human feeling, and I, I think that that is. I think I do think that that is true. I don't think AI has that, but but I don't know. I I, I I sometimes also then think at the same time that I'm a hopeless romantic, and actually, you know, it's all going to be taken over. We, 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 I don't think anyone really knows. With these, just returning to a kind of nuts and bolts business question, with these increasingly bespoke packages that you're able to offer advertisers, how does it work in terms of policing the boundary between advertising and, and, and editorial, in particular if you know, the editors themselves are, are liaising with, with advertisers? Is there a set of policies if an advertiser wants to have a bearing or gets you to pull a story or, or things like that? How, do you, how is that whole part managed? The editors are not constricted in any way. And, and you know, sometimes they, they do things which aren't favourable to advertisers. I mean, in terms of working with them, we're very clear about what's editorial and what's advertising. And we have, if we're doing advertorials or promotional films, they're always very clearly demarcated. There's very clear guidance and ASA guidelines about how, how you approach that. So we're, we're, we're scrupulous about following those, those, those lines. We're coming towards the end of our time. So as a, a final question from me, how do you hope to sort of distill some of the things you learned from your book um, in future in terms of your own career? How are you going to sort of hone your creativity further in the coming years? I'm going to be much more methodical about, about how I think about my own imagination. I'm going to follow my own instructions in the book and, and, and take notes more often. When I'm walking, I'm going to, I'm going to carry a notebook with me. I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep going on my commonplace book. I'm going to stop, look at my mobile phone as little as I can. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the spaces in between, this idea that the, the, it's a Japanese sort of Buddhist concept of ma, where we have these spaces in our lives where ideas happen, whether it's waiting for a kettle to boil or standing in a queue. And, and I think I'm going to remind myself to, to treasure these moments and not to reach for my phone to check Instagram, which is the overwhelming temptation that we all face these days. I think that's one of the great enemies of the imagination is, is, is these moments, these few minutes where we're sitting on a bus or we're waiting for a train or we're, we're um, just not, not doing anything really, looking out of the window. I think those, those are the moments where interesting things happen if we allow them to. And following on from Rachel's question, is there anything that, that you at work or Condé Nast as a firm will, will do differently based on the insights that you garnered? Pulling together the book. Well, I, 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 it's a, it's a personal project. It's not really a, it's not really a, um, a not, it's not mandatory, mandatory reading for the office, <laughs> but the, it certainly made me think more about about how I work in the office and 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 really the the um, the things that I'm careful to avoid. I, I mean, people sometimes have an idea, and I say I don't say. I think to myself, well, we tried that idea five years ago and it didn't work and I, and I check myself I, I don't say it because the world has changed around us maybe that idea will work now and I think that um, when you've been in a company for a while and if you've risen into a position of leadership I think that the, the need to feel right is a very dangerous um, pressure or dangerous feeling that one can have the ego can take over because you think you've been on a linear p- 
a path to, to, to wisdom and to, to, to being the cleverest person in the room. And in fact, you haven't, and things have changed. And, and really, I think the enlightened leader, even if they've been in the company for 20 years, should be aware that they may not have the answer, and there may be somebody much younger than them who's come from a different perspective. And they may have to be contradict. They may they should embrace contradiction, however uncomfortable it may, it may be to to hear it. And certain, and particularly in the in the world we're in, where so much is changing around us, I think I think the 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 lesson for me is is stay open minded. And you know, the analogy I use in my book is that you know that we we're taught that life is like a game of chess where everything follows a certain pattern, but maybe the the squares have shifted to the vertical axis and the rooks are moving in diagonals and the pawns are retreating three spaces at a time. And this idea that the world is turned upside down is something that I think we, we've always got to be open to. And we, we've got to have, in a way, the beginner's mindset. And we've got to, and we've got to cultivate that, that freshness of perception through life that, that, um, that it's quite easy to, 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 to give up and to lose. I like the line in the book as well where you said that ideas come where there is confidence and laughter. It's another very important element, very important element of, of, of office life is to, is to create a, an atmosphere of lightness and, and, and lack of, you know, for people to have bad ideas should be almost mandatory because bad ideas can lead to good ideas and an expectation of ideas is, is, is something that if you build it into the, into, into the office culture will produce amazing, surprising things. Great. Well, look, Albert, thank you for being a great guest on Always Take Notes and talking to us uh, both about your own book and about the um, your experiences at Condé Nast and, and also what's going on in magazines more generally. And we wish you all the best with the, the Imagination Muscle and your other projects going forward. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Albert Reed. He's on Twitter at Albert Reed. And The Imagination Muscle is published by Constable. Rachel, what was your takeaway with the interview? I enjoyed speaking to Albert. It was great to have someone on the show who was more involved in the management and um, distribution side of things. Um, and it was clear that that was something that he was interested in from the, from the get-go. On the other hand, I also enjoyed hearing about his book and the fact that it came from this... Uh, stumbling across this book when he was a lot younger and it was obviously something that had occupied him ever since and it reminded me of other interviews I think it was Antonia Fraser who said that good ideas are like marriages you have to be you have to be really sure about them before you commit um how about you I was very interested I kind of as yourself to to hear this discussion about the business side of journalism and particularly magazine journalism and some of these big questions about whether and where that um that part of the industry is is going yeah, so very interested to hear his thoughts about the future of print and where these things fit together. And as you say, like I think, I think it's good. I think we should have more people who are really involved on the the business side of journalism and publishing because without the uh, the money, none of this stuff works. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom, and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.